There's there, the information explosion, the technology explosion. Uh, the church often looks more like the Pharisees than like Jesus. And there's so many reasons why we need to draw on the tradition of the desert, to, to face the times that we're in, to walk in these times that we're in. And so today we're going to continue that with that beloved story of, of the provision of manna in the wilderness. Uh, it's, it's rather than being a feel-good, happy ending story, this story is actually about another test and, and, and training. How many love training? Raise your hand. Yeah, it's, we have this love-hate relationship with training, don't we? Uh, because we all know that it's important. We all know that if you're going to fulfill a dream, it's going to take training. And if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a technician, if you want to get in shape and be healthy so that you can serve others well, it takes training. And so that's the good part of training. The, on the other hand, it means hardship. And, and if you're an academic or taking school, it often means late nights, early mornings. And it can be arduous and frustrating. And there, and there's all kinds of setbacks and disappointments, isn't there? And you got to try again and give it another go. And of course, there's a critical component of training that we particularly don't like, but we know it's essential. And it's, it's a component to make sure that we're getting it, called testing. How many love tests? Nah, less hands than the training part. But how else are you going to know that you're really getting it without a test? How else? I mean, I don't want to go to my brain surgeon for brain surgery if he cheated on his tests, right? Or he didn't take any. I don't want to have uh, jump in a jumbo airplane and fly across the ocean by a pilot who's never been tested, who hasn't had thousands of hours of training flying experience. I don't want to go to a dentist particularly. They're the worst. <laughs> Who hasn't been tested. And I get a feeling that a lot of the drivers on the roads in Vancouver have never been tested. How many have that same suspicion? Yes. I don't know what that is. But we know it's critical. We know that training is critical, testing is critical. And of course, it's true in life. Our text today is about God's supernatural provision in the desert. But the underlying principle of what's going on here is God sees it as an opportunity for school, for training. And Israel is in school. And the question is, what are they in school for? Well, the only way that I can describe it is, it's, and this is a bit of a gross illustration, but it really works. But I, I used to, I heard about a few years ago before we learned all about free range and all the good for the cholesterol and all that, that chickens would, live chickens would be brought to the markets. And they'd been tied up with twine or wire and they were ready, you know, to, to be uh, sacrificed for our blessing. And they would take the twine off these, these chickens after they'd been transported to the market, and they would just lie, lie there after the twine had been taken off. 
and nobody had to worry about them running away because they were so used to being bound that they didn't know how to be free. And that's exactly what was happening with the Israelites. They had been slaves for so long, they didn't know how to be free people. And so the desert was critical for Freedom 101, for God to train them so that they would know how to walk in freedom. And in the same way, the New Testament message is, is the same, isn't it? Paul said to the Galatians, and how many Galatians do we have here? Uh, people who, you know, have pretty rough backgrounds. He said to them, you're free now. He said, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your sin nature, but by love, serve one another. So our whole discipleship is, is learning how to be free, learning how to be free people and to live in a different kingdom, in a different order, in a different world, let alone preparing to rule angels and, and planets in the age to come. I mean, that's, we, we just have a little glimpse of what's coming there. But even now, we're, John said, even now it doesn't appear what we will be, but we know that we'll be like him. And Jesus talks about us sitting with him and reigning over the universe. Like, you know, I'll, I'll have a galaxy, you'll have a galaxy. And some of you, you know, if you're really smart and you were really holy, you might even get a, you know, a whole uh, solar system. Well, I don't know. I don't know how to work. You know, it's got to be a pecking order, right? Somehow we're, we're so oriented for that. Um, so... Our story is about training. So let's see, let's see how it unfolds. Our text is Exodus 16. Lots of text today. It saves me doing a lot of preaching. We can just read the text. Verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. It's actually Sin. That's how you pronounce it. Do you remember Elam last week? It was where all the palm trees and the, it was the oasis after they'd had that bitter experience at Merah. And the desert of Sin is between Elam and Sinai. Remember Sinai? That's where they're, they're heading right now. On the 15th day of the second month, I want you to notice the units of time that are used here. We're going to talk about that. After they'd come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. No, really? So just a reminder that they came out of Egypt here and they crossed perhaps in this area. We don't know. Nobody really knows for sure. And they journeyed down through Merah and Elam, which is in that area there. And they're on their way to Mount Sinai. See there? Remember we talked about that this was a very uh, barren, parched area that you could go for hours and not see one green thing. It's very easy to die quickly of dehydration and starvation. So it was hard. And they had to remember that God didn't hate them because it was hard. That it was hard because they were in training. Right? Remember that. Is it hard? Maybe you're in training because God has a dream for you, right? So the second area was this desert. Of, there's actually a city called Sin pronounced Sin, and so the desert of Zin, not to be confused with the wilderness of Zin. Some people confuse that up there. They were actually heading this way towards Sinai. And, re, and the 
amazing thing about this is, was the time frame. Um, so the first lesson in their training in, as free people is to learn a new pace. What kind of pace when you're a slave? Go, 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 drive, drive, whipped. You're driven from behind, right? You have no control. Now the pace has changed. By the distance and the time that's given in this passage, it was about one month from the time they'd left Egypt to here, which when you calculate, there were long periods of rest, long periods of waiting by oases and, uh, and being refreshed. And remember, as we said last week, there were children, there were nursing moms, there were pregnant women, there were seniors, people with physical disabilities. All generations were walking together in a very, very uh, parched area, and God took all of this into account. So the route was steady, it was focused, it was sure, but unhurried. So the first kind of training the desert gives us is we, we are re-educated to live unhurried lives. Don't you get that sense of Jesus that even though he was under pressure, he lived an unhurried life? Often we get hurried because we become distracted, and that's when mishaps occur in traffic, when you're in a hurry, right? When you're in a rush. Mishaps. How many have ever had a mishap happen on your cell phone with an autocorrect? Oops. Doesn't that often happen when you're in a hurry, right? I, I was going to read some... Uh, auto-correct um, things on the, and show them to you? I couldn't show you any. They're just gross. <laughs> so it's an arduous journey. They're not comfortable. They're in training. And the food is running low. Remember that they had a lot of food coming out of Egypt in storage, but, but they're starting to run out of their supplies. And it's not like they're, they're complaining about some some uh, inconsequential thing. It, you need to eat. Uh, they, they were starting to get hungry. So the Israelites said to them, to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, when you're really hungry, your memory can become very selective. They forgot the lash of the whip. They, for, they forgot the, the loss of their human rights and their, free, their freedom, the genocide of their babies. And they, they were right to remember the food. The, the fact history tells us that the, the Egyptians had a practice of keeping their slaves well-fed because they wanted them healthy and productive. So they did feed them well. In fact, Numbers says... They had flesh, fish, bread, abundant vegetables, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. So <clears throat> they had lots of food and bad breath. It's great. Um, I don't know. They, I think they forgot that too, didn't they? They were delivered from that. So when you lose your vision and purpose, the flesh pots of sin look really good, don't they? Isn't that when we're most tempted by sin is when, when we lose the fact that we're in training and, and there's a purpose in this. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. So God, at this point in His grace, God's grace reminds them that they're in training. I will test them. This is a training opportunity to learn how to be free. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on other days. <clears throat> so reading on. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening. So, you know, they're going to get double here, manna, but they're getting meat in, at night and all the bread you want in the morning because he's heard your grumbling against them. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he's heard your grumbling. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be scary for me. My dad used to have this way of, but, you know, we had this big house up in northern Alberta, and, and at one point my cousins were staying with us, so there was five kids. Five? One, two, yeah, five. Five of us kids. And it, my mom and dad hated yelling to get our, get our attention, so he devised this buzzer system. And there was a buzzer, it, it went zzz, zzz, and that meant, it, it was like a general assembly. Everybody had to assemble before father and mother and we were being summoned. And that was usually the one that was the least scary, because at least if, if, if we were in trouble, it was everybody, not just me. But he also had a code for me. Mine was bzz, bzz, and then a short buzzer, bzz, like that. And then my brother was bzz, bzz, and then bzz, bzz, like that, right? And my sister was three, like the, everybody had the two long ones. So the, when the two long ones sounded, we all, is that all of us? And then, oh, thank God, it's Dwight, you know. So, so uh, then Stephen, my cousin, he was uh, uh, four, and then my, my youngest cousin, who was always getting in trouble, was five. But mine was the shortest, and I think like that. And it was very convenient because I was being called the most, so, you know, it saved them the trouble. But anyway, it was pretty scary. So I kind of, when, when I read this, I thought of the buzzer. I think God rang his buzzer, and everybody goes, uh-oh. You know, they're all in trouble. They know they've been grumbling. So while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Uh-oh. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So I can just, you know, I can just feel their relief. <laughs> you know? God calls them. I've heard your grumbling. It's going to be okay. That evening quail came. Now quail is kind of like a pheasant kind of bird. Um, 
and, and, it, and it migra- the birds migrate from Saudi Arabia across the Red Sea over into the e- Egypt. And then it, at this time of year, they actually migrate back. So they had just taken this big, long flight across the Red Sea, and they're just tired. They're really tired, and so they flop on the, on the beach. And the people, they, they, they didn't even have to shoot them or use slingshots or anything. They just came and grabbed them. They, they were so tired. So it was like a major feast. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. Communion wafers on steroids. I think, I think, you know, I think we should get communion wafers like this. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? Which, by the way, in the Hebrew is kind of what manna sounds like. Manna, what is this? For they did not know what it was. So Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. So remember, it looks like a great provision. It looks like a blessing, but there's school going on here. They're in training. So the first training was pace, living unhurried. Now there's a second bit of training that they never, uh, of learning how to be free, that they never experienced when they were slaves. So God's got another lesson for them. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person. See, I told you, omer's in the Bible. I told you. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. And the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much. Now, this is a miracle. Look at this. Some gathered much and some little. And when they measured it by the omer, and omer, by the way, was, a, was, was like a, a, a vessel. They, they, they estimate it was three or four liters. So they gathered for each person, and no matter how much they gathered or how little they gathered, when they got back, everybody had enough. And nobody had too much. Isn't that amazing? So there's kind of a little magic going on here, right? And, and when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Paul quotes this, doesn't he, in, in Corinthians, when he's talking about giving. And he's talking about the economy of the kingdom of God. So for whatever reason, some gathered more than the allowed amount, but when, they, when it all came out, everybody had the exact, the right amount. So this, the second lesson on, on living in freedom is learning how to live in God's abundance with simplicity. We've all heard the statistics and how much food there is available in the world. Enough to feed the world many times over. The problem is somebody's eating too much. There's a distribution problem. Right? And that's, that's the message that God's bringing about His kingdom and His order. But I heard some shocking statistics about clothing this weekend. Did anybody listen to some of those documentaries that were going around this weekend about them? The, the inequity in clothing and the crisis of clothing waste in the world. People are buying something like 400 times as much clothing now as they did 30 years ago per year, amounting to an average of one article of clothing per week. 
The average North American family spends $1,700 on clothes annually, while the average North American throws away 65 pounds of clothing per year. And the problem is we have all of this, uh, I don't have time to get into it today, but all of this promotion about recycling clothes, and a lot of it actually gets, ends up in the dump. So other areas of, of distribution, even though half of North American households don't save money, the homes have more television sets than people. And these television sets are turned on for more than a third of the day, eight hours and 14 minutes. British research found that the average 10-year-old owns 238 toys but plays with 12 on average. In North America, 3.1% children own 40% of the global toys. So is it, this is kind of what's going on here. God's saying there's a new order coming in my kingdom. And I, I could just, I could go on with these kind of statistics. But the point is, God says, my kingdom, you don't need to hoard. And here's what happens when you do. Because as slaves, and, and you're not sure where you're provision will come from. The temptation is to hoard to, or to hold on. So Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it till morning. They were to, almost like Jesus said in Matthew, as sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. They were to trust God for tomorrow. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. Now, the Hebrew is kind of confusing here. Because it looks like they intentionally went out and did twice as much work on the day before the Sabbath. But if you look at the text closely, that's not what happened. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So what actually happened was they did the same amount of work. They went out and gathered as they did on all the other days. And they prepared their manna like they normally prepared it. And they found out they had twice as much. So the next test of faith was, hey, it turned into maggots the other day. But now God says, we can save some for tomorrow. And again, they had to trust God that it would be okay. So they saved it until morning as, the Lord, as Moses commanded. And it did not stink. Or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said. Because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. So, nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it. But they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, Fail! <laughs> How many are glad when you flunk a quiz, there's always a chance to take it again? You don't get kicked out of the course. So we know there was a lot of failures 
that happened in the desert with them. They fail. So what does God do when you fail? He just says, well, we'll take it again. I love that passage in Deuteronomy where it says it's a 40-day journey from Egypt to Kadesh Barnea. And the next verse says, 40 years later. So why? Well, partly because they had to retake a lot of tests. Right? So the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are. That word stay, so powerful. Stay where you are. On the seventh day, no one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. So what's going on here? It's an issue of trust. It's an issue of learning a whole new way of freedom, of trusting God. That means, first of all, unhurried. When you tr it says, what is it in Isaiah? Those who believe will not make haste. Remember that scripture? There's, there's an unhurriedness that comes from trusting God. And there's a pressure to be hurried when we don't trust Him. The second thing is, and, and we see kind of the, the, the training and testing that's going on here. As I said, it's, it's a whole new way of living, a whole new pace, a new rhythm. Did you know that right up to this time, most commentators see that there was no such thing as, the, as a unit of measure called the week? It was just one, every day was blended into the next. The only thing they had was the moons. So they, they understood months. So you see, you know, the 15th day of the second month, you see those kind of measurements. But in this, with the manna, God invented the unit of measure called the week. And he invented the weekend. He said, you can stop. And the word Sabbath means to cease. And what was so tender about it is God said, was saying to them, you are not a machine. You're my son. You're my daughter. I delight in you, and you don't have to do anything to make me delighted in you. You are delightful because of who you are. That's the message of Sabbath. A new measure for our security and worth rather than production and accomplishment and achievement. The core of your worth and value is a relationship with Yahweh. And a, and a means of discerning between our true and our false self. Because what Sabbath does is we're confronted with our, our false selves, our drivenness, our, our slave mentality. And God reminds us on the Sabbath who we are. Radical concepts. So the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white, like coriander seed. It tasted like wafers made with honey. So I don't know, I was, what is those sesame seed? Things you buy in the store that are kind of sweet. That's kind of my idea of what manna was like. Could be wrong, but sure better than those communion wafers. Verse 32. 
Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. Then Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tables of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. So obviously Moses is writing this later uh, and, and looking back to this story. So the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And as you'll remember, if you've read that part, as soon as they crossed, the manna stopped. So what's going on here with this instruction to give Moses uh, to, to, to take the manna and save it? What's going on there? Why did God ask him to do that? I think we've talked about this a lot, haven't we? The importance of memory. Importance of remembering who you are and whose you are and what our source is. That our source is in our job, our source is in our payroll, our source is in the government, EI, or whatever it is. Our source is God. He'll use those things. But like Elijah in the, by the brook, Remember the brook dried up. Remember the ravens were bringing Big Macs to him every day? And it's one day the brook dried up. So God said, I'm still your source. I'm still your provider. But I'm going to provide a different way. I want you to go and be dependent on a poor little widow. And I'm going to bless her the same time as I provide for you. Wow. So the way that I see this is is in this new order, it's about faith, and our faith always needs help. That's why art is so important. I believe art provides a visual aid to our faith. And, and communion and these tangible sacraments and means of grace. That's why I wear a Franciscan cross, which I lost. I have to go get another one down at the Catholic bookstore. But I love that little, you know, the little wooden cross. It looks like a T. Remember the First Nations girl that was at the cashier? She was a cashier at Safeway. She said, I like your, your T. It looks like a cross. I said, it is a cross. She said, really? I said, yeah. I said, it's St. Francis. I said, he's, he, remember, he's the guy that talked to the birds and the animals. He's just like a native guy. And she laughed. She thought that was so funny. I love my little Franciscan cross. It's wooden. And I was talking to my spiritual director about a problem I was having a few. This was a little while back. I think we were still back over at the Salvation Army. And I was just really having a hard time with my preaching. I go through seasons where I really enjoy preaching. And, but you got to do, you know, when you do this week after week, year after year, month after month, and half the time you don't know if anybody gives a rip. Because of the time you put into it, the effort, and then you hear so-and-so isn't showing up and so-and-so decided to take a break. and It's just hard on me sometimes. And I know anybody that preaches feels that. And I just felt like my preaching sucked. I just felt like 
I give everything I have, and everybody looks bored, and I just go through these times where I feel like I've missed my calling. You know, I just feel like I should, I don't know, start a monastery somewhere where you can be married. And it's, I'm just being real. I'm just being human. That's just, it's reality. I don't live there, but it does. I go through seasons where I suffer depression about, about it because probably one-third of my life in a week is, is preparing scripture, preparing word, and I take it seriously. Um, my spiritual director, Jeff, who I'd love to have you meet, I want him to speak here before he gets too old because he is getting on. Um, he pointed to my cross that I was wearing, my wooden cross. He said, well, tell me what's going on. I said, well, I just feel like I just give it everything I got. And it's time to quit, and I feel like it hasn't been enough. So I do one of two things usually. I go too long trying to make it be enough, and it's not, because then that makes it worse. Should have shut up while I was still ahead. I said, or I try harder. I try to get everybody excited. I, I go back into my 20s mode where I try to, because there's probably the greatest fear I have about church is boredom. If I hear people are bored, that just goes like a knife through me. I hate that. But I can't fix that. I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to realize I can't fix that anymore. But I still am tempted. I'm still tempted to get hurried and to, to kick into that false self. To try to be something I'm not. Gordy the preaching machine. Bringing revival across Canada. Seriously, that was what I was called back in the 20s. My 20s, not the 20s. I'm not that old. <laughs> So Jeff said, when you've offered what God has told you to give, can you just stop and take your cross? Just hold it. So I did that. I actually did that for quite a while. And I don't know, something just really changed. I just grabbed that cross as I came to the end of a message. And I said, Jesus, I've offered... This is my manna. I'm not going to try to gather more. This is the manna. I accept it. I'm not going to puff myself up. I'm not going to be more than what I am. It's like that Psalm 131 that Karen quoted today in our prayer time. I have quieted my soul like a weaned child. I will not worry with things too lofty or wonderful for me. I just be me. So that's what I have to offer today. The desert of solitude, silence, and Sabbath provides means to expose our false selves that spring from unbelief and fear and gives us practices by which we can return to who we really are by trusting in God's goodness and love for us, daring to slow down, daring to stop, daring to not be more than what we are. Uh, is probably some of the most courageous things that are needed in our time. 
When I was growing up, the, cra the crazy thing to do was jump in front of a biker gang and preach the gospel to them. But now the courage courageous thing is to stop and to just slow down, to listen. So what are some of the false selves that you're dealing with, that you're tempted to hide behind through unbelief and fear? What are those? And what are some of the tangible anchors that can help you stay grounded? For me, it was that little cross that really took me through a season. And, and I encourage you, there, it's not magical, but it, it's just means of grace and faith to help you connect. So Lord, would you help us as a church to find, to live in freedom, to know how to be free people, not driven by the gods of this age, not co-opted. Would you help us to simplify with our possessions, with our lifestyle, our time, to make more room for you and each other, and relationships and community, for the poor, for the marginalized, for our children, to have one another into our homes this year, to be listeners this year. Just going to invite you to to wait and just take a moment and just invite the Holy Spirit to just show you any false selves that the, the language of the New Testament is old the old man the old the old self and the new self but the old self comes out of false projections of who we want to be based on fear and unbelief. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden. And the real self is who you were created to be. God says, return home there. Augustine said, I was away from myself and I was away from you. Being away from myself.
So maybe, uh, how's our time? I think we've got a few minutes before we have to sign our children out. So just invite you to turn to one another and maybe just share one aspect of training. Maybe you're, you're going through right now. Or if there's something about that false self that emerged through our quiet time, just share that and, and uh, I hope that my vulnerability helps give you permission to, to share things like that with each other. Um, if, if I can help pray for some of you, maybe just further about something that the Lord spoke to. Um, I know some of our oversight team would be willing to, to do that as well. And of course, there's coffee and wonderful snacks made by Helen at the back, which is as much a part of our worship as anything else we're doing. So God bless you. <laughs>